So it's just making sure everybody's in alignment because when you have everybody in alignment, things move super smoothly. But if someone's why is way different than what we're trying to accomplish here, that's when I have, you know, high turnover rates. Welcome to the Big Picture Blueprint. I'm your host, Dan Hebercost, along with Mason McDonald. And we're going to discuss all things land, real estate and business in general with all kinds of exceptional people. Let's get started. Welcome, everybody, to the Big Picture Blueprint. I'm your host, Dan Haverkoss, along with Mason McDonald. We have an awesome guest today who has really taken the land business that Mason and I both operate. He scaled it to a much bigger degree, uh, Anthony Pappas. But before we introduce Anthony, Mason, how's it going today? Uh, it's great. Uh, I'm excited to learn from Anthony. was just on the phone uh, with a potential pretty large entitlement deal out in Texas that I was taking a look at. So going to use this show selfishly to learn what Anthony's doing in his business and uh, copy and paste it in mine. Well, that's what we're all really doing. We're just learning from each other. But uh, guys, I, I heard Anthony on Steve Trang's podcast maybe two, three years ago. And I thought, wow, it sounds like he's got quite the business. So I friended him on Instagram. We messaged a few times. And over the years, I've listened to some of his podcasts, seen his posts, his stories, and He's doing some big deals. I mean, we'll get into it, but a million dollar assignment fee on one deal, 450K here on another. So uh, I'm excited. Anthony, how you doing? I'm doing well. I appreciate you guys having me on. For our listeners, anybody who wants to hear the backstory, he's been on plenty of podcasts. He has content all over online, so you can find that elsewhere. Uh, we wanted to talk a lot about what's going on today, what's working for you, what your team looks like. So, you know, on some of your prior podcasts, you'd mentioned you have a big focus on on cold calling for the lead generation and then assignment as your means of disposition. Does it still look like that today, or can you kind of walk us through what the the business looks like on the front end right now? Uh, yeah, same. Uh, cold calling is our bread and butter. We do some very niche mailing. Um, so if it's uh, if we can't get a good phone number for them, that's who we mail. We don't really do the big blanket mailers like we were doing in the past. We're sending fifteen thousand dollars, fifteen thousand pieces of uh, postcards a month and just burning through money for no reason and never really saw a good ROI on it in the Phoenix market. That, of course, I hear works well in other markets, but Phoenix is a little saturated with people sending mail and harassing people. So we cut back on that and cold calling is staying true for us. And that's where we get probably 90% of our leads from the rest either come from referrals or those targeted pieces of mail that we send. So to get the lists that you're cold calling, um, I heard a podcast that you were on and you were just going click by click through the GIS, picking parcels that you like. Are you still using that method or are you doing a larger scale poll to get the data to eventually cold call? Still do a lot of the virtual driving for dollars. It just seems to be uh, the highest you know, return on time. I've pulled a lot of lists, but the downside with pulling lists is they either miss out on lots that are uh, maybe they had a house that had been torn down and they're still labeled incorrectly in the tax records. They're in flood zones and didn't get filtered out or, you know, the topography is just too terrible to actually do anything with. And when the team was burning through just time and time and time, we said, hey, let's go back to what works. And in Phoenix, uh, the GIS map is uh, one of the top performing lead gens. For, for those of you guys that don't understand, uh, pretty much every county in the country has a GIS map that's linked to the assessor data. And planning and zoning data where you can hop on, look at what the zoning of the individual parcels are and click on it. And it's going to give you that information that you can then go and skip trace. And it really makes a lot of sense just because if you know, hey, I look for this lot with this zoning in this area, let me go click on every single one uh, to find 
ones that match because you already know the numbers on it and you know the strategy on it. Yeah, there is a there is a software out there that we were, we've been playing with. It's called uh, Land Vision. And what you can do is it has the GIS map built in. Then you can go to, say, City of Phoenix, pull the shape file for zoning. And then you can overlay it on the map and then kind of search by parcels with it, which is pretty cool. It's around 5000 for the year, just a one flat fee for the year. But that's been pretty helpful. The only downside is you can't pull as many of those uh, stacked records as I'd like. It's normally a couple hundred at a time where we'd like to obviously pull significantly more. But still trying to find the right data. We've been playing with data tree as well seeing what kind of data that puts out. Um, but still, it every time I do an audit of the data it's given me versus a certain area, so many parcels are getting missed, which is great because that means nobody else is contacting these parcels. And that's where I think we do really well is finding the ones that are missed by the list and getting in touch with those cells. So that's interesting because the way I've always done it is opposite where we mail and then we just cold call the returned or failed mailers. But You've got me thinking here because I was I was doing I, every six months I look back six months in arrears and I try and aggregate aggregate data and get an idea you know how how much is mail producing versus cold calling and cold calling has really gotten us some of our best deals and quickest too from the time right. we first contact them to actually closing them and so this is interesting and kind of as a corollary to all that something I've noticed from everything I've heard from you is you have gone very deep on on one big metro area as opposed to you know going off to a million different markets so how long have you been marketing the land over land owners specifically in the phoenix metro about four years now how many times approximately do you think you've called uh, every owner there or do you continually call that what does that what does that look like yeah uh, there's uh the nice thing is with the repetition they start to get to know you and the trust starts to form and they, a lot of wholesalers will come in, throw offers at them, then disappear. And then a new group comes in, disappears, but we're the one group that stays consistent. And we've actually got some deals. Um, Dylan, one of my acquisition guys, locked up one that we've been following up with for three years and we made 65000 on. So it shows that I know a lot of people out there want the one call closes. It's sexy, it's fast, but sometimes the follow-up can't really pay dividends, especially in the lamb game. And that right there is... You do get lucky in this business. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that will never call the sellers back, that will never do anything in their business besides send an initial batch of mailers. So it does happen from time to time, but a lot of our best deals in my business, Jan's business, and and sounds like in yours is you're going to have to have multiple touches over months and sometimes years before they close. But uh, you mentioned Dylan as one of your acquisition guys. What does your team on the front end uh, for lead gen and acquisitions look like right now? So we scaled back pretty dramatically. We we're up to uh, seven guys. I had seven team members, came back all the way down to two right now, cut everything back, really started focusing on making sure everybody on the team was hyper-focused on the same goal. Because sometimes when you scale too much or so it felt for me is uh, you start getting people in there just to have more people you know, in the roles and they weren't super focused on what we're trying to accomplish. And I felt that it was more of a distraction um, than it was you know, helping us move forward. And then also some people come in for the role and they're just, they don't enjoy it as well. And it, it carries through and you realize you're burning a ton of time trying to help someone be successful with the job that they're not cut out for. It's part of the growing pains. So I recognize that name from one of your podcasts at least a year ago. So it sounds like you have some longevity with your employees. And this is somewhere where I've struggled. I've either hired people too similar to myself and eventually just want to go start their own business or too far on the other end of the spectrum and they're not motivated. How have you, or, or what strategy 
have you found is most effective for hiring and then incentivizing and maintaining good employees? So making sure uh, the why, making sure their why aligns with my why and that their end goal that they're trying to accomplish in life is something that they're going to achieve by being a part of you know the company that I'm running. So it's just making sure everybody's in alignment because when you have everybody in alignment, things move super smoothly. But if someone's why is way different than what we're trying to accomplish here, that's when I have you know high turnover rates or just uh, poor performance on the team. And then they get burnt out because they're not producing, but they're also not making the calls. And now you're dealing with taking time from stuff you should be doing to try to help coach someone that's just not a good fit. So there's some good learning curve there for me as a leader on being more, uh, like Steve Train used to say, be uh, super slow to hire and quick to fire. And that's something I, I'm having to be a more consci- conscious of as we're, we're growing and making sure that if we're bringing someone on, it's just not to bring somebody on. It's There's a solid reason behind it. Because it would make more sense just to bring on a couple of VAs to cold call instead of acquisition managers. Because VAs, you know, you can just pay them hourly rate and then you just expect them to do what they're doing. But I also put a lot of pressure on the team and hold pretty high standards. So what are some of the metrics that you're holding your acquisition managers accountable for? Is it uh, amount of cold calls they're doing, amount of deals they're closing? How do you hold them accountable to staying in alignment with the vision that you've created for this company? The main thing is dials per day and contracts out per week, or at least offers out per week, because we can't we can't be super confident that a contract's going to get signed. That's out of our control. You know, the enemy gets a vote. Uh, so we can't control that, but we can control how many offers we get out. We can we can also control how much time we're spending on personal development, how much time they're spending. Are they showing up every day for sales training, stuff like that? So there are some things we control. Uh, one big one is sales training. You have to be there every morning. Uh, how many dials you're making per day and how many offers you're getting out per week are made. Are you still talking to sellers yourself? Oh, yeah. All day long. Yeah. And that's uh, I'm, I've noticed I want to scale it back and stay in the trenches uh, as much as possible so I can kind of have more of a pulse on the market, especially since we've entered into kind of a weird spot over the last two years with interest rates going through the roof. A lot of our builders kind of hit the pause button end of last year all the way through about, you know, end of last. So it was like mid last year till end of last year, there's like a weird pause with a lot of our single family builders. So I wanted to get my pulse back on it and realize I was spending too much time on busy work, dealing with cities and stuff on the entitlement stuff and need to get pulse back in to see where we could make some shifts to pivot with the market. That makes sense. And personally for you, what is the favorite part that you have in the business? Is it calling the sellers? Is it managing your employees? Is it working with uh, the city or the county on the entitlement uh, side of things? The city and entitlement is uh, basically, you know, watching paint dry, Um, but it's paint, it's turning the wrong color as it's drying. So you get to do it all over again would be my best analogy. Now, I really enjoy helping the team build up their sales skills and crush it. I love watching one of my guys win more than me just winning myself. It's uh, it's a different kind of feeling. I'd rather cut a check to one of the guys on the team than get a check, which sounds weird, but it's uh, something that I've really found enjoyment in. So coaching the guys up is probably my biggest sense of you know pride or happiness generating activity. But then also getting on the phones and haggling with sellers is also something I enjoy as well, just to make sure you still have it. Stay in the trenches. <laughs> yeah. Got to keep the sword sharp. Exactly. Uh, and and one more question kind of on the acquisition manager, because it, it's challenges that we, we've both had in the business. And I think a lot of people have whenever they get either inundated with leads or they have difficulty managing it with your, your team, who is your, 
and you don't have to say names or anything, but what are the personality traits of your best acquisition manager? Who's better than you at it? And why do you feel that way? Uh, so I don't know if anyone's better than me at it yet, which means I still have more to do as a leader and more training that needs to be done so I can offload that knowledge. Um, I did have Steven on the team who was with me for two and a half years. And uh, his why was he wanted to make enough money that he could go all in on his YouTube career. He's always had a dream of being, you know, an influencer. His first year with me, he took home 120. Next year, he took 230K. And so he was able to take that money. And now he's doing really well. He's had a couple of views. Our videos already hit over a million views and it's, it's working. So that was awesome that I got to be a part of that journey a little bit, but he was one of the best performers. And that's because he locked in on the sales system and just 100% focused on nothing that he was up at four 30 in the morning, just watching Sandler videos, watching Chris Voss videos. And he dedicated basically his whole time into becoming the best salesman he can. And it's funny cause he does a lot of like street interviews. So he's using those same sales tactics on people. And it's pretty fun to watch. And I, I think one, one side of that, that I heard that I think whenever you're looking at a sales position where your opportunity to make a ton of money is, it, I mean, it's limitless theoretically, but I, I hear that hunger that you're talking about with him and he had a mission and knowing that he can achieve it, he went out there and did it really quickly and then staying motivated, watching Chris Voss videos and things like that of matching the education with the hunger and it, it just works out. So that's awesome. Awesome to hear. Although touching on that, the only downside is when you come in with that fire and hunger and you start having that success, you can also burn out pretty quick. Uh, Dylan, who's been with me the longest, he's on about three and a half years. He's, he's been very consistent. You know, he's not the highest performer, just, you know, uh, banging a thousand calls a day. And he's also not the lowest performer, just barely half-assing it. But he's a very consistent over the years. And I think that's helped him avoid burnout because that's one of the biggest things I think we face in this industry, especially bringing on new people is the burnout. Normally you get a year, maybe two years out of a guy before they're like, Hey, I'm no matter how much money they're making, even though we're working from home, you know, in the AC with the, with the dogs around us, it's still people burn out. I have to, uh, I really want to second Sandler training is excellent. I went through that as a, as a teenager for the job I had in, in college and wow, that has stuck with me. So you, you put your guys through that and Chris Foss's program or what is that? Yeah, so we've gone through a lot of uh, the different Chris Voss's one. The nice thing is Chris Voss has a lot of like online learning, like individual learning where you can kind of do stuff on your own. He had a real estate one that was phenomenal in the negotiation nine. We also go through a lot of sales books together. So we'll read all the Sandler books, do a couple couple chapters a night, take notes. Then we role play what we learned that night before and the next morning to make sure everybody's absorbing it. And then we're all uh, interpreting it the same way. That's been really helpful. Also digging into like uh, Jocko Willink's extreme ownership. Uh, normally once per year, we go out to one of his musters with the team and just kind of dig, dig into personal development stuff like. Yeah, uh, that's so important because that's all this business is. That's the other than the being skilled with the due diligence and knowing your stuff about construction. Beyond that, the only point where you need skilled people is the sales side of things. That That's it. That's really all this is. Okay. So one other thing uh, around your whole strategy I wanted to ask is, are you still primarily assigning contracts or are you buying and reselling more or what does the disposition side look like? Do you hear about the deals that Dan and I are doing and feel like you lack the capital or knowledge to do them yourself? Allow us to be your partners in this and visit gupland.com to learn more about how we can provide you with all the capital to complete land transactions as well as the expertise and guidance for you to create your own business. Visit us at gupland.com.
uh, it's probably about a 85% uh, percent assignment rate still. And then every now and again, we're taking some down, flipping them on market, and then cherry picking the ones we want to entitle. Uh, in Phoenix, it's getting a little harder to find the ones that you want to take through an entitlement for multifamily. A lot of multifamily buyers have also seemed to slow down. I'm starting to see a resurgence, though, now that rates seem to have hit their peak. The feds come out and said they don't plan on raising any higher, which is good. Seems to be more buyer sentiment again on the multifamily side. Uh, so we'll see how that pans out. But yeah, we kind of hit the brakes a little on the entitlement stuff, just seeing what kind of shook out. But hopefully we're on the tail end of it and can go hard again on it. But there is some buyer sentiment, obviously, because yeah, we just lost, uh, signed that 17 acres in AJ, which will be a 390 unit. And uh, that one went pretty quick with a couple offers wow. on the table. Well, let, I mean, let's dive right into that one. Talk us through how'd you, how'd you find it? How'd you get it? What did the initial contract look like all the way from front to back end on it? Uh, so that one came from cold calling. Uh, Carlos was on the team at the time. had been following up with uh, the seller for over two years. Another long-term thing. Another group came in, uh, couldn't get their plans approved. I think they want to do like a storage facility. So the seller came back and said, hey, it's available now. You've been the only person that's been consistently reaching out. I'll give you guys a chance. We had a buyer originally lined up uh, that we were going to try to partner on. We were going to get some equity on the acquisition side and stay in the deal. Uh, they canceled when the market got a little squirrely um, and said, we're no longer interested. So we started uh, approaching other groups. And this is something I think a lot of people sleep on is utilizing commercial brokers to help you find the right buyer. You know, we want to do it all ourselves and keep all the money, but we would have never found the buyer we did without the commercial broker. Uh, shout out to Gunner over at Leveros for helping us find that buyer. And uh, he found a great buyer that's out of Florida. They're a giant institutional multifamily group. And they said, hey, we like it. We just need time to entitle it. So we're able to go back to the seller, get an extension on our contracts. And hey, we, we need full entitlements before we can close. We're transparent that we're handling the acquisition up front for this other group. They're going to come in. They're going to be the ones building it. Um, so what, what do we need to do to get this done? And uh, it's been a fun back and forth between that group and our uh, our attorney. They have an attorney, obviously. When you start getting into the larger entitlement stuff, just be prepared. Everyone's got an attorney and you have to sit there and just watch attorneys talk back and forth and just $65 per email. It starts adding up. Oh, yeah. Quick. Where, where in the Phoenix Metro was this? So this is East Mesa, Apache Junction border. Interesting. Okay. So with entitlements, what all does that or what all is entailed in that process? Are you just submitting plans to the city and, and going through meetings and, uh, you know, doing new survey? What, what all does that look like? Because few people are actually doing these and talking about them publicly. So can you get a little more granular there as to what all is entailed there? So the 10 unit will be a good example of that because that's one that we're, we or I 100% own. Uh, we as a company own, uh, we bought it uh, to fully entitle it, bought it as a failed project from another group that was trying to entitle it. They had some issues with the architect and engineering team, which turned into an interesting uh, fit of like a bit of karma because we we got some issues with our entitlement <laughs> team as well. Uh, but so we bought the lot uh, with the intent of getting hopefully 13 units. City chopped us down to 10 with parking and open space requirements, which we kind of expected. Uh, ran into some issues with some easements and stuff like that that weren't caught on the initial Alta survey. So that's been some other headaches. But kind of the process looks like this. You uh, find a good site. Uh, you run your your numbers based on what you think it's going to sell for, what you think it's going to cost to entitle. Normally you factor in a little 10% boost because everything costs more and takes longer than you expect. Uh, but thankfully we had enough cash to buy this one outright so we didn't have any holding costs, which uh, has been kind of a saving grace with how long it's stuck. But you find a site, you lock it up, 
then we go into like a feasibility period, normally 90 days. So we can get an Alta survey with the geotech, uh, normally like a topo survey. Uh, and then we'll go in for a phase one environmental, make sure there's been nothing hazardous or that would, you know, contaminate the soil that could cause issues for us. Then we kind of try to get in for a pre-application meeting with the city to make sure, make sure that they're going to even entertain what we want to do there. Um, then that's normally around day 60 that we're about there. And then hopefully by day 90, we have some feedback from the city like, yeah, we'll entertain this. Since that other group had already gone through a lot of this, they already had preliminary site plan approval. We closed on it pretty quick, probably too quick and missed some of these things. Uh, I should follow my own advice more often. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been an interesting process because we picked it up. It had prelim site plan approval. We are hoping to take what they already had, uh, make some tweaks to it and fix it. Turns out a lot of it was not salvageable at all. And so we got to start completely over. So it's a... It's been yeah, a and see, it's interesting because I've been doing new construction for years. That was actually my intro into land was via new construction and eventually sourcing uh, lots for it. But I've always focused on shovel-ready infill where it takes three to four weeks to get a permit. And we already know what we can do. And so I, I haven't done any projects like that. So it's always interesting. Um, now, in this case, are you planning to build the 10 unit and keep it? Is this going to be a rail for you or what's the plan? So yeah, looking at both options right now, seeing what kind of offers we get just for the, the land basis itself. And if another group wants to come in and cash me out, then I'll always just move it into the next project. Or I'm also working with the GC right now and we're getting the full build package quoted out for us to see uh, where, where numbers lie and if it makes sense to build or just sell. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and and. That's something important to think about, and that's one of the reasons that we both love land, or all three of us love land so much, is because you have so many exit strategies of taking it. And I mean, if you get the property at a discount, you have the opportunity to flip it like a lot of people do, or assign the contract, or do some level of enti entitlement. We have it kind of broken down in our business of medium versus heavy entitlements, and this seems a little bit more like a heavy entitlement deal, having to go through everything. Do you do some of those lighter entitlements or medium entitlements of you'd go in, get the surveyor out, and then you just sell the paper lots as well? Or are you just focusing on these uh, larger deals? Uh, we've done uh, some where we just uh, did like a small subdivision, you know, just split up a lot. Like, well, I guess it'd be a minor land division, you know, anything under six lots, which is nice. It sounds like you've done a few of those yourself. And those are pretty quick and easy for the most part. You get a survey, draw some lot lines, send it off to the city and or county and say, hey, can we do this? And they normally stamp it pretty quick. And it's a much smoother process. I should probably do more of those. It'd save some hair and brain cells. But uh, yeah, it's uh, Elon Musk once said, being an entrepreneur is like chewing glass and staring into the abyss. And I think that's true for entitlement because uh, this one, the 10 unit, and it's a 10 unit. I've ha I have uh, one that we sold that was for a 75 unit and they're already completely through entitlements and we're still fighting. It's just silly stuff. Funny thing on the 10 unit is there was an old storm drain easement running diagonally through the lot. The city had abandoned that over a decade ago when they put it in the storm line and they needed us to prove to them that they had abandoned the easement. And I'm like, what? What is happening here? But our architect... Yeah, yeah, but unfortunately, our architect also kind of dropped the ball. Sounded like they had too much on their plate at one time, so they caused some delays with some stuff that they missed. So we had to go through three three rounds of uh, city comments and stuff like that. But it's uh, these are all things that you have to just be ready for on the entitlement side because you are beholden to so many other people's schedules and timelines. And like the team right now, we have an architect, an engineer, and then we have our landscape architect. We have our uh, fire system architect. We have an entitlement attorney, and that's just 
the immediate team before you branch off into their own teams. And it's just a lot of people communicating. And then you have the city and all their people. So it's a probably 35 people all in all that is just taking part and get this little 10 unit to where it needs to be. So learning patience is uh, becoming a virtue of mine on this. Well, there's one point I really wanted to make going back to when you started talking about this, you mentioned you bought it for cash. So it's been okay. And it's so important guys, when you go into deals like this, where the government can, with one decision, delay you six months, a year, a year and a half to be really intentional about how you structure this, where you don't have short-term debt, or if you do, you're already ready to refinance it, or you don't have a you know a monthly payment that you can't uh, support in the long term. Because I've watched this happen to many friends of mine where you, you, you're totally at the mercy of the government. And so how someone might feel on a, any given day can affect your project. I'm sure you can you know, relate to that, Anthony. So how you're structuring these is really, really important. Do you keep that in mind with all of the longer term entitlement deals where you either have it done for cash or you have equity partners where you don't have monthly payments or how do you think about that? Yeah, my first goal is not to lose money and looking at all options and making sure, uh, for example, like the, the 74 unit was 72 and then we're going to get 76 and it landed somewhere in the middle there when the next guy bought it and entitled it. But uh, same thing. We, we were looking at all options. Uh, originally it was just going to be an assignment deal. We were going to prove feasibility of the site. We did all the due diligence work. We had the site plan. We got in for the pre-app, did all that kind of stuff. I had it locked up for about 60 days, but thankfully we had the right entitlement attorney that was able to expedite us through the city of Mesa's process. Uh, it was unheard of that we got through that fast, but I had a backup option that if the, uh, buyer that I assigned it to backed out for any reason, we had the cash available to take it down. So it, it, having, making sure that you're protected both ends, cause we had 40 grand on the line for that. And I'm not a big fan of losing money, no matter how small. Uh, so even 40 grand, I wanted to make sure we we're protected. So I went to a private lender and said, Hey, how much equity would you want in this deal? If we had to take it down, they said, yeah, I'll, I'll do it for 50%. So I had a safety net that if they failed to perform, we we're going to take it down, run, run it through the rest of the entitlement and then sell it, which in hindsight would have been a great idea because we sold it to that group for 800 and uh, it was 850,000. We made 450 on it, less the uh, fees we had in. It was like 410 in profit. They have a standing offer right now for 2.8 on it and they put about another 100 into finishing off the entitlement. So in hindsight, you should have just taken it down and ran it all the way. Sometimes, it, I mean, we say it and I feel like I don't know the expression, but it's the one in the hand versus two in the nest. And just sometimes it, yeah. whenever you're winning, because a lot of people will hear that and be like, man, 410 grand profit. Shut up, dude. Like, that's fantastic. But yeah, they, then you hear the numbers on the back end and it really depends on how comfortable you are with risk tolerance and just how far along in the process you enjoy or feel like you should model your business. Because if you're attempting to do all of it and you over leverage and you structure that deal in the wrong way, uh, you can really screw yourself over. But I mean, good for them being great for you on this deal. I want to hear what you're in your mind, Anthony, what's the best deal you've ever done? And it doesn't have to be necessarily the highest profit, just your favorite deal that you look back on and you're like, you sleep well at night thinking about it. So my favorite one so far, and it was still a decent payday. uh, This was a fun one. It was a lady had started a 10 unit development up in Sedona, Arizona. She had uh, gotten underground done in the contractor's from her side of the story, we're taking advantage of overcharging her for everything. Sounds like they ran into a bunch of soil that was way worse than they anticipated. I like to find that I believe truth is somewhere in the middle. And I think maybe she didn't do enough due diligence on the front end. And, you know, there was that 
So anyway, she couldn't complete it and she was running out of money and it was going to go to foreclosure. Uh, a buddy of mine, Dario, who I met through this whole process, had started cold calling. Uh, I believe he was part of Pace Morby's group. Pace gave him like a um, some sort of delinquent list and he was just cold calling. He found it, didn't know what to do with it, sent it over to Ingrid Hernandez. She didn't know what to do with it. She sent it over to me and we were able to structure it, save the lady from losing it, and we got it sold. And uh, we, all the three of us, made a 250000 uh, Dario got 50000 for the cold call. Ingrid got a hundred, and then I took a hundred as well for structuring the deal. That one's probably my favorite deal just because how rewarding it was to get it done. And I actually sold it to some good friends of mine who finished the build, and it's about to be uh, ready for occupancy coming up now. So they have a, a trophy 10 unit in the heart of Sedona, which is prime real estate uh, for an amazing price. Uh, they're going to hold it forever. And it was just like a win, win, win all the way around. But it was funny. The seller even said when we first got her on the phone, she's like, I don't care if you assign this. I don't care what you do. I just need it done so I can get my money. And I think she, I think she made, she got a 1.3 for it. I think she was all into it for like 950. So she made some money on it too. Um, so everybody won, but at closing, she had a change of heart because a broker reached out to her and said, I can get more for you. So she tried to cancel and not go into sign. And uh, I unfortunately had to put a little leverage on the situation and say, here's where we're at. The lender has already wired the funds. You have signed all the documents. If you don't do this, not only am I going to have to force specific performance on you, they're going to come after you for damages for the money sitting there and losing interest. Like, where do you want to go with this? And she's like, okay, yeah, I just, I'll just do it. But that's uh, another uh, importance of having a really strong contract that you can enforce just in case things take a squirrely turn. Because I, I was blown away. I was like, hold on, you got everything you wanted. And now somebody's telling you that they might be able to get you more money and you're willing to take that gamble, even though you're so close to losing this to foreclosure. It was just, it, that was pretty wild. Human emotion's funny. Seller beware, I guess, but she won, you won, everyone won in that deal. Do you have, but do you have any examples of times where it hasn't gone that way, where seller gets to the closing table and they attempt to back out and you've had to force a sale or has that not become an issue in your business at this point? Thankfully, we haven't had to go specific performance yet. I have had to do six demand letters, letting them know that we are ready to, and we were 100% ready to force the sale and make sure that people hold up to their contractual obligations that they made with us, especially if I have money on the line. And that's what I know some sellers maybe aren't as aware of the costs that go into this, but just making sure. And that's a, a thing I think a lot of the new wholesalers struggle with as well is going around people and trying to muddy the waters when you see something out there is yeah. just a dangerous game because uh, it's everyone's going to get into the mix, especially when it comes time to to sue, especially when you have big money on the table. So it's, it's a dangerous game, but thankfully I've never had to go all the way to court. But yeah, we've done a few demand letters saying we are ready and we have the packets ready to file. That normally gets people off the ledge. And if uh, you're looking for a great attorney in town, Fowler St. Clair is who I use for all my contracts, my assignments, demand letters. And the beautiful thing about having the same attorney that drafted your contracts represent you through to the end is they're, they're 100% you know, confident that they can get it done based on how the contract was written, but makes a ton of sense. It gets expensive. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, we, it, it, it's painful when you get that statement from an attorney at the end of the month of, and the line items of emails sent back and forth and it's a thousand dollars on emails. And it's like, man, that it's painful, but it's worth it in the long run. And you get pay now or pay later. But I think kind of on that note, 
How do you feel like you establish legitimacy? Because you're in one of the most competitive markets in the country. Uh, you've got, I mean, I know tons of wholesalers in the Phoenix area, and I know tons of people that are uh, doing business out there, and I know tons of people that are failing at business out there. How do you feel like you and your company differentiate yourself of, hey, we're legitimate, we're the real deal, we're not like the guy sending you will buy your land for cash postcards? I think uh, the track record, we have a really strong track record. We have a great relationship with Pioneer Title Agency, with, and they've I've had people that uh, were hesitant before using with us. And I said, call Pioneer Title. I've given them permission to fully tell you how many deals we've done this year. Uh, feel free to call and vet us out. Uh, you can pull us up on uh, the county records. You can see the deals and transaction volume we have. You can see that we currently own properties. And then I can also send you a proof of funds directly from, you know, an actual bank uh, that shows that we have the funds available for, you know, certain lots. Uh, nothing on the too big, obviously, but a lot of lots that we are putting offers in, we do have the cash available to purchase it if uh, if we say we're going to. Yeah, I, I want to just drill down or second that because the number one reason in the competitive markets we're getting business to is because we put them on the phone with our title company, which is also an in-house attorney at Florida, which has been excellent and proof of funds. So that, right. uh, that is so important, guys. Um, oh, and actually having earnest money on the contract, to your last point about having to force a sale, I I feel like you might have trouble there if your earnest money was $10. So guys, actually put up an earnest money for serious deals. Uh, if you're going to be entitling or even just land flipping and you're taking it serious, yeah, putting some serious earnest money on the table. And I know there are some attorneys that say, you know, just a contract by itself is enough to stand up in court. I I don't know if I'd want to risk 140 grand in entitling a property and find out if that ten that ten dollars really holds me true to the contract. So we do make sure that it's uh, majority of the contracts we send are five and ten k, and we do deposit the five and ten k with the with the title company, and so that our contracts are pretty drum tight. But touching back on forcing uh forcing the sale, we have let some sellers out of contracts due to personal situations that they were facing. So that is something that I think as investors, sometimes we can be a little cold hearted, like, no, you agreed to this. You're going to, you're going to sell it to me. Um, but at the end of the day, if, as long as we're taking care of people and treating them with the same respect that we expect them to treat us with there, there can still be a win-win. And we've had some people that, you know, lost a significant other and they were not in the right mental space to deal with this kind of transaction we completely understood and got our money back and shook hands and went our separate ways. So there is a level of humanity that I think we need to focus on as well. And that's a, that's my soapbox. No, I, I think it's important because ethics and business are, it, it's really easy to go down a slippery slope and fall down. And suddenly you're looking at it and you're, you're the guy that's screwing up over all these old people that no longer can afford to pay for their retirement or uh, senior living home or wh whatever it is that's going on. And I, I think it's it comes down to transparency and the transaction of recognizing, hey, we are investors. We are planning on making more profit on top of this deal. And I think uh, depending on the actual seller, a lot of them understand that and they are okay with that if you are treating them as humans as versus an object. So I think it's an important point to make because Absolutely. it's it's easy to fall down the other side of it. But I, I want to dive a little bit more into your business. So, I mean, we're, we're talking about assignments and we're talking about all these. Are, are you doing any smaller land flips or do you have what, what's your deal criteria that you look at for any deal that you're doing? It's gotten so wide. That's a problem. I'm a deal junkie and get my little dopamine fix every time I'm underwriting one. 
Yeah, I will buy stuff as small as an acre out in um, the middle of nowhere, Whitman or Tonopah, uh, if it has utilities to it, and then I'll, se I'll sell or finance it. That's not something I'd really ever played with in the past, but I was I was having so many wholesalers sending me stuff out there, then and we just needed to put some funds to work. I said, hey, why not? So we started buying some of those, and it's actually been pretty rewarding because there are certain people that maybe they don't have all the cash down and their whole dream is to just buy that one lot that they can one day put a mobile on and live out in the middle of nowhere and helping people accomplish that's pretty rewarding and then we're looking at stuff all the way up to you know 20 30 acres for multifamily development so it's just such a wide band of what we're looking at that it's a little overwhelming sometimes but i enjoy it gotcha okay and one thing that i wanted to circle back to along with that is something you mentioned before about a deal that you have under contract at 3.5 million and you're assigning and this for me really breaks some limiting beliefs in my head. So many people are afraid to send an assignment contract. 20, can you tell us about the deal we're talking about and maybe do a deep dive on this one? Because I think there's a lot both Mason and I and our audience can take away from it. So uh, with this one, I want to have the caveat that it is still, this thing could fall apart a month from now because it's still running through entitlement and it needs a conditional use permit to be used for exactly what they're used working for. But thankfully the city's super in favor of it because this is a site they've wanted developed for the last decade and nobody's had uh, the cojones to do it. Um, so I found the right buyer that loves the site. Um, we're at the right time for the area. There's a lot of growth, a lot of new development. So it's kind of like the perfect storm, but it could still fall apart tomorrow. And um, you kind of have to take that into account. I don't look at any deal and count the the eggs till they hatch, as it were, uh, just because I've had so many of them fall apart. So with that being, that's my caveat to it, that this thing will have to follow up uh, next, this upcoming December to see if it actually closed. We can do a follow-up episode and I'll either be really happy or drunk, one or two. We'll kind of go from there, but yeah, so it could fall apart, but yeah, so it is a um, 17 acre site. We locked it up for 3.5. That's what the seller wanted, which is fair for what it's currently zoned. And then I was able to find a builder who's still getting the land basis for pennies on the dollar for what they would actually need it for so it's kind of that perfect storm to where you can have an assignment fee of close to a million dollars in there and it not affect anybody uh, either way which is pretty awesome and that's the uh the nice thing about when you're getting into the larger price points but i've also heard about people doing this with luxury lots too if you're in an area where houses are selling for you know 30 to 60 million it's really easy to squeeze on a large a large assignment fee like that without people caring now you get into, you know, if the houses are selling for a hundred grand and you're trying to squeeze a hundred on there, it's going to be super difficult. Just the higher the price point, the more you can, more, more you can put on there. Absolutely. I, I, I think what people need to take out of that is as the numbers get bigger, you, you really have to look at who the numbers are affecting the most. And that's going to be the builder or the developer, depending on what type of deal structure it is. So if there's super high sewer tap and water tap fees, and there's a lot of engineering or soil work that needs to be done. And you have to factor that all in if you're running a wholesaling business or double closed business or just a flipping business of recognize that's how you do your math on your initial offer for those of you guys that are kind of at the beginning of your journey. Because hearing the idea of a million dollar assignment of, I mean, that's what, $110,000 assignments, probably. I'm not good at math, but, and, it, it it just doesn't calculate for certain people that haven't done it. But if that builder, the basis on the land at four and a half million dollars is nothing for them, uh, then that's fantastic. So it's possible. And I, I think that uh, hearing that you're doing that and we'll, we'll we'd love to have you come back on in December and hopefully 
maybe we'll just all be drunk in celebration is the, the, the end goal. <laughs> Very true. And it's a, it's kind of a paradigm shift. It's that financial thermostat that over time you start getting more numb to it. Uh, even before that one, the largest assignment was the one for 450 that was true net profit around 410. That had been the largest one to date. And it was a kind of a paradigm shift. Like uh, if I can't find a million, I'm failing because I just wanted to keep doubling the biggest one before that because the biggest one before that was a, a quarter million. So I was trying to continually double which is good and bad because it also you're chasing something that you sometimes don't have control over and it can start to affect you on a personal level because I, you know, I take lo losses as worse. I take losing worse than I do winning, if that makes sense. It, it seems to affect me more because I'm very competitive, more so with myself than anybody else. And if, uh, if I'm not hitting those goals, I take it very personally. So it's uh, something over time. But if as soon as you hit a 30, it's easy to do 100. When you hit a 100K assignment, it's easy to do the 250. And then you just start getting accustomed to these big numbers and realize that it's it, it's just numbers and kind of feels like a game at that point. Yes. I, I So I remember hearing this years ago when I was getting started and it, it irritated me at the time because I didn't get it. I thought it was like rappers talking about the game, trying to be tough. But no, it really is. Once you've got your basic needs met, you're not worried about that. If you can gamify this in your head, I find that I'm much uh, better able to make good decisions because it's not you know, life or death like it is when you're starting or in your head it is. Uh, and you can think more clearly, plan long term, and just be more logical around when you gamified your head. I, I found that to be useful too. I don't know if you have anything else to say on that. Yeah, I, th I think you know to, to expand off that and what you were saying, Anthony, I, I think for those of us that have this type A... CEO, entrepreneurial mindset, we're all the same of, I hate losing so much more than I like winning. I like winning, but I'm used to winning yeah. in life. And that sounds pretty douchey. But when I lose, I get mad. I mean, Dan and I talk about it. Yeah. We we just joined a new gym where we can start playing basketball and everything. And I told him, I'm like, dude, I'm a sore loser. I, I, get, I get upset in competitive games. And I've got two deals going on right now where uh, it's one buy for 205 and we might sell it off market close to 370, 380. And I've got one that I'm buying in Arizona city that I'm buying for 20 and we're selling probably off market, uh, already bought it, brought a buyer to the table at 28,000. And I'm, yep. it's hard not to be upset about that $28,000 one. My money's going to be out for, I don't know, 14 days. And then you do the math on it and it's like, dude, that's a 7,000% annualized return at the end of the day. That's a, it's a win in anyone's books. You have to, you have to celebrate these wins in some capacity because you look and it's like, dude, I, I just made a little bit of money in four days or 14 days. And so I, I think no matter where you're at in the business, you have to still try and celebrate as much as you can because it really is easy to get enough. When Mason and I were starting our land businesses, capital was the biggest hurdle for both of us. Over the years, we found this is the case for nearly everyone in the land business. And that's where Ground Up Partners came from. Ground Up Partners is a capital provider for land deals. We'll bring all the funds necessary to close the deal. And you just bring the signed contract. Visit guckland.com to submit your deal and get started today. I think that's an amazing point. And that's something that I had struggled with too, is you start almost looking over these small deals like they're not worth your time not realizing that those small deals will add up as much as the other. And sometimes those will be what keep you going through a bad month. Sometimes, uh, cause when you're just chasing big deals, we had, I believe around 2.2 million in escrow in assignment fees last year that fell off the board when the market got squirrely. 
we had four large entitlement lots that all buyers backed out and it went to shit because they were just not comfortable taking the risk. So that's the downside to chasing uh, year over year. We are down about 35% in net profits for the year because we started chasing nothing but bigger deals. And uh, when you get lost chasing bigger deals, you're going to, you're going to take some lumps and that's uh, keeping us the infill lot business strong and steady, or even a small, um, you know, a minor land division business steady, that's going to be your bread and butter to let you chase these bigger deals and also give you the capital to take them down and risk some money. Cause I'd hate to see anybody watch this and say, I got 20 grand in the bank. I'm going to go and title a lot. No, nope. please don't do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> get some, get some traction, get some deals done on your belt, build that confidence, build that nest egg, and then take on that opportunity. Cause any money that I risk, I can afford to lose right now, which is uh, a blessing in itself to be in that position, but it, or you can find somebody that's willing to take that risk. But if you're playing with other people's money, you have a fiduciary responsibility for to protect it. Even if you're not bound legally, morally, we have an, a responsibility as investors to uh, uphold that truth and honesty and keep people protected. Cause the last thing you want to do is burn people. Cause that could be their life savings that they're entrusting you with. And I'm, I'm too married to not, man. And I mean, we, we agree with you a thousand percent of, I, we, we've said, and I, I said a lot of a lot of these deals, especially when you're getting started, uh, I would never structure deals the way that I did two years ago whenever I was getting started. But I had the mindset of I eat last because I'm building my track record and developing trust and rapport with these people that now they're giving me money at a way cheaper rate and they're trusting me a lot more because I said, look, guys, you're making more money than I am on it. So you have to prove yourself. And then to expand kind of on the point you were making before, uh, that's something that Dan and I go back and forth on and we talk to each other about it. It's like, man, if I ran your business and you ran my business, we'd probably do a lot better where it's, uh, it's hard not to want to chase the big deals where I've been spoiled by a few grand slams that make me only want to go after those. And then Dan will get tons yeah. and tons and tons of base hits that make him more money than my grand slams at the end of the day. And so it's figuring out that correct balance and of how to, do the heavy entitlements or small, medium entitlements, the minor subdivisions, the simple land flips, the simple assignment deals and balance it all. So where the way I look at it is that 4k or whatever that I'm going to make on that Arizona city deal, that's 8,000 or 8,500 more mailers that I'm able to send. That's going to go get me that next one. And so if you can kind of compartmentalize the thinking with what your PNO and amounts to being based on those individual deals. Uh, if you break it down by those cost centers, that's how you're able to kind of structure it and think about things in a different way. Um, or at least that's what I do or try attempt to do in my business. It's 100% uh, the right way to think, I feel. And it, it's finding that happy medium between, you know, that cash flowing business is just constant revenue coming in. And then that gives you the opportunity because a lot of times the dragnet, when we're going after small info lots, that's how we some stumble on these larger lots because someone's like, I'm not selling that. I'm building a house on it. But I have 10 acres over here that I'd take an offer on. And then you also have the track record and the volume of deals going. So it's just, it helps you stand out, especially in markets like Phoenix, where everybody's a cash buyer. And that's another thing I think we can touch on real quick is when I lock up lots, I am never closing in three days a week, 14 days. And I think that's something that a lot of wholesalers do to their own discredit, where they come in and say, I'm a cash buyer. I can close quick. I can waive inspection periods with land. You're not doing that. I, I know very few land buyers that'll just buy with sight unseen land because so many of them have been burned in the past where they've had issues with easements, encroachments, soil issues. And it's very rare that I have a buyer that'll take it without at least a 24 hour inspection period. 
a lot, uh, although some of our buyers have built up that trust with us that they're, they're a little quicker to close on something because they know we do that due diligence on our end, which helps, but uh, make yourself stand out by not following the herd. Go in there and say, no, we need a 30 day inspection period for this reason. We need an Alta survey or at least a boundary survey. We need to get in and make sure there's no contaminants. We need to make sure that we can get water to this lot. I know there's some lots where they were only providing water to one acre lots with a private water company and you weren't allowed to drill a well in there because they didn't want you competing with their commercial well. So those are the kind of things you run into. And if we were just like every other wholesaler, yeah, we'll lock it up and sell it quick. We wouldn't have caught that. And if I would have closed on it, we'd still be sitting on a lot with no water. So it's something I feel that is uh, lacking in the, in the community, as it were, that people are just taking the house selling script or buying script and trying to apply it to land when it is. Yeah, I, I, I just, I have to emphasize this. I'm doing a whole talk next week at the local real estate group about direct to seller marketing 2024, what's working. And I'm using my own business as an example. And that is one of the biggest points I want to make is land is totally different than single family houses. And the demographic that sells usually there's distress sometimes, but I say 80% of our buyers are more upper middle class to wealthy and not in a hurry because they've owned this for decades. And so one of the first things we do is walk through all the due diligence we're going to do pertaining to the building of a house or apartment or whatever it's selling for. And that builds such a trust and legitimacy in the mind of the sellers that uh, that gets us deals all day long. And it, I, I kind of laugh when I see these, you know, we'll buy your land for cash. Well, it's land. Nobody finances it. What else are you going to buy it for? You know, like it's, it's not, it's like, duh, of course you're going to buy it for euros. I don't know. So I... I've been amending all of our marketing pieces so that they don't say all the things that everybody else is saying, just like you're emphasizing here. And that's really helping us. So no, those are, those are all great points. I'll stop there, but uh, definitely resonating with everything you're saying. And agreed with Dan and Anthony. And one, one thing I want to point out there is with, with Anthony's business, he does do more of a sniper approach by going in and doing this uh, virtual driving for dollars with the land. But it's the same confusion that I have in my business sometimes is my 50 cent postcard will sometimes give me a $4,000 deal and sometimes give me a $400,000 deal. And regardless of the market or the, the method of lead generation, whether it's the sniper approach, cold calling, that person might own 50 lots throughout the Phoenix metro area. And you calling them on that one particular one, yeah, they might not want to sell that one, but they might sell 20 other ones. So I think it's if you're consistently sending marketing material or generating leads, whether it's cold calling or something like that, you never know what which one is going to be the the deal that uh, just makes a ton of money. So another point I wanted to drive out of there. But as we kind of move towards the end of the show, Anthony, you're making you're making good money in this business. Uh, land is nice. Uh, whenever you're flipping, it's taxed, it's inventory. Sometimes you will run into capital gains depending on the development. Are you doing any buy and hold? How are you mitigating your tax exposure uh, with the amount of income that you're generating? I'm not I'm doing terrible at it and paying too much per year in taxes. What I wrote to the government last year is still bothers me. Okay. I thought about that way too late. And the downside when you're just buying land, you can't depreciate land. Um, I tried to uh, get my CPA to see it my way and say, well, it's technically it's inventory because I'm going to entitle it and resell it. He's like, yeah, you're going to get audited. I'm like, yeah. okay, let's not do that. So that I wish I was um, putting it in. I mean, I bought myself a new truck, depreciated that. You know, I, I stay within the boundaries of the tax code. I, the last thing I want is to get audited. I would rather pay the money and not have them show up at my door with their blazers on, look, trying to look through all my stuff. 
yeah, I spent way too much last year in taxes and I need to get a little better about it. And that's why I'm looking at trying to take some of these developments vertical because then I can, you know, have some depreciation and start maybe 1030 wanting some money as I sell those and move it forward and try to keep the money in play. But yeah, I've done very poorly with a tax mitigation or. Hey, that, I mean, that, that that's okay. If you're, if you're making money, Uncle Sam's always going to get the cut. There are the strategies and everything, but figuring out the active income generating business is the most important part of it. Uh, we, we talk a lot about the idea yeah. of just like the 20 grand, don't go do an entitlement deal. You have 20 grand saved up. Don't go buy a rental property. Yes. You need yes. to figure out how to make more than 20 grand yeah. in your business before you're able to go and do that. And obviously there's different risk strategies, right. but um, man, I did the truck thing. What'd you, what'd you buy? Oh, Ram 2500, mega cab. I always wanted a big diesel and said, yeah, we'll go get one. And it's, uh, that's my little pride and joy. I jacked it up on some 37 inch tires, you know, just did the whole thing. And it's, uh, it's oh, been yeah. enjoyable. Still trying to figure out how to write off all my guns, but, uh, see. Yeah. I, we're still yeah. They, they, they won't let you. I tried to figure out the same thing with golf and yeah. country club membership. And they're like, dude, you, you can't do that. Man. <laughs> it just, uh, it doesn't work that way. Even though a majority of the IRS tax code is towards saving your taxes, uh, None of the advice that we're giving in this show or lack of advice we're giving anyone should take seriously. Talk to a CPA, talk to an attorney, and you cannot hold any of us accountable for that. But uh, 100%. Although I did get advice from a CPA who said if you create a YouTube channel and a new LLC that is 100% that business, now you can buy the products, do a review on them for the YouTube channel, and now it's a write-off for that business and it can take a loss for the first couple of years as it's a new business. Like that sounds borderline sketchy, but hey, yeah, I need new guns and new clothes and new, whatever, new watches yeah. and everything like that. It's, it's, it's a YouTube review. Yeah. So yeah, they said that's how a lot of these pages are getting away with it is they're doing YouTube reviews and it, you know, it's uh inventory for the show so that they can do reviews. And then um, eventually the YouTube channel will start probably creating revenue and become its own business if you do it long enough. I like the idea of just the new construction and keeping it, man. I've been slowly buying rentals for years at a number of cost segregations this week. And you buy nice rental properties because I've bought nice ones and not so nice ones. And at this point, I want to put all my time and effort in just scaling the active business and buy and or building and keeping nice new rentals. And then it can save you a big chunk in taxes. And I forget uh, the bill, but I know there's something at, at con in Congress right now where they're working to bring back 100% accelerated their bonus depreciation. So if that passes, especially mm -hmm. uh, buying nice buildings, oh, yeah. cost eggs is the way to go in my opinion. Oh, yeah. 100%. Or with the nice thing with teardowns too, if you guys haven't looked into, you can do a bonus depreciation. If you can buy a lot that has a structure on it, you can do a bonus depreciation on the value of the structure and demo it and then use that towards the tax bill as well. Would pretty cool. I just heard about that uh, relatively recently at a developer conference and I was like, oh, that's pretty awesome. So. That's about the only way you can depreciate land is it's got to have something on it you can demo for it to be worthwhile. But that that that's a great piece of advice. I hadn't, I hadn't heard that, and it makes sense. But once again, not a CPA. Don't, don't listen to anyone. We're we need that disclaimer at the beginning of South Park on our show, basically. <laughs> yeah, not a bad idea. I love it. I love it. Well, as as we start to wrap things up, is there are there any questions that we didn't ask that you wish we had asked during the show? No, you guys did amazing. And then uh, just uh, a lot of people want to get into land and I think they should. I think it's the untapped uh, resource that's starting to get more traction. We're starting to see a lot more people get into land, but there's so much room for collaboration over competition. And I feel like everyone gets stuck in their own little bubble and they 
mine, I don't want to share it, but some of the biggest deals I've done was collaborating with other people and getting with like-minded people to share my knowledge. And every time I get on one of these calls, it's not just me sharing my knowledge. I'm learning from you guys as well throughout, which is huge is picking up what's working for Dan, what's picking working for Mason. And then we can all grow from that because I, that's one of the biggest thing I, everyone gets so like, there's not enough, uh, what's that a scarcity mindset compared to we can all crush this together. And I think that's a, something we should do better as a community is just try to help each other and blow this up. Cause there's still a lot of land left, no matter what seller to tell you. I mean, there's over 150 million parcels in the United States and it's the idea of one plus one equals four. And I think the, the next time we have you on the show, Anthony, um, I mean, I'm, I'm excited about the business you're doing. Uh, I'm starting to do deals down there. Uh, Dan was just out in Arizona recently and how hopefully uh, by December you'll have that win and maybe we've done a deal together or gone in on a strip center to offset some taxes and do some fun stuff. But uh, Anthony, where, where can people find out more about you? Uh, Instagram, probably most active. It's AD Pappas on Instagram, Facebook's Anthony Pappas. Um, then YouTube, I think is AD Pappas as well. So, uh, try to throw out some of our wins and videos and stuff, uh, lessons learned just for people trying to get started. And if anybody has any questions, get, hit me up. It might take a, a while to get back. I'm still, I don't know when Instagram did this, but they have like a request and then like a blocked folder. And I always forget to check like the request folder. And, uh, so I have like my inbox, then there's a general inbox. I don't know why there's so many inboxes on Instagram or what's going on, but yeah, I always forget deck requests. And if, if, I, if we haven't like communicated before, everything gets lost in the request folder and I'm trying to be better about checking that intentionally more often. You're a busy guy. You're doing a lot of deals, but man, this was a ton of fun. Uh, there's so much useful information uh, across the, the entire gamut of land investing, land flipping, entitlement, wholesale. So I think our guests or our, our listeners are going to get a ton of value from it but dan anything else or take us home no man this is uh dan habercost anthony pappas and mason mcdonald with the big picture blue pit catch you guys next time and that's it for today's episode of the big picture blueprint if you found it helpful please share it with your friends or anyone you think that it could benefit don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and we'll see you in the next episode